0: We'll just pray in a, a moment or so, but first of all, I just want you to turn in your Bibles just to Judges chapter 1, Judges chapter 1, and uh, yeah, we're just going to begin looking at the, the book of Judges over the next, well, wee while, we'll not go any further than that, eh? no more promises, and I'm just going to read first of all from verse 1 to 8. And we read that after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, Come up with us into the territory allotted for us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down ten thousand men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek, and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught up with him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Then from verse 17. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore it was called Horma. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to, dis- to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and Joseph was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Lus, they saw a man coming out of the city and said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Lus, which is its name to this day. And then from chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you to the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you, There will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Let's just come and pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons that you teach us from your word. And we thank you that, that this word underlines that so much more than our offering, though you take joy in that offering, yet so much more than that, you're looking for your people to offer their hearts and lives to you. You want us, each one of us, to enthrone you as we know you in our hearts as Lord. Father, teach us more of what it means to live like this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as has been said, I want to to begin with you a, a series on judges. And as I thought about, about doing this during the week, I felt a, a little bit like the old man who was travelling on an ocean liner, when suddenly, without warning, just a, a huge storm blew up. A woman on deck lost her balance and fell overboard and the people on this this great ship stood frozen with horror and then a man plunged into the waves, grabbed her and held her until a rescue boat came. When they pulled out this couple, everyone was amazed and embarrassed to discover that the hero was this old man, the oldest man on board, a man well into his 80s. So that evening they held a party to honour him. And they called on him as as part of the celebration to make a speech. Slowly the old man rose and he looked round the people. And then he said, I would just like to know one thing. There was an embarrassed silence. Who pushed me? (laughs) Now that's how I feel about preaching on judges, for a number of reasons I feel kind of pushed, compelled if you like, into this. First, because I think that the the sheer timescale that's covered in this book demands that we pay attention to it. For it might surprise you to know that though this is only one book with a mere 21 chapters, yet within this book, within these 21 chapters, we find the period of approximately 350 years of the history of the people of Israel. Now, just to give that some kind of perspective for you, let me inform you that that's about a quarter of the time period covered by the entire Old Testament. The second reason why I think we need to look at this book is very much related to that, and that's the fact that despite what we've just said about this being a relatively short book, covering a comparatively lengthy period of biblical history. Yet still, this is a book that apart from a few, one or two well-known stories maybe about Samson and Gideon, this is a book that the vast majority of Christians know next to nothing about. And I believe that that's something we have to do something about because the third reason why I feel compelled to preach on this book of Judges is because I feel, I believe that it deals with issues that are just so relevant to our present age. Issues like, what are the processes that lead to spiritual decline? How do you keep your head above water? And more than that, how can you flourish in an evil and godless generation? Because you see, if you were to get a motto to sum up the book of Judges... Then I think it would be hard to find one better than the one that was up on the screen behind me a moment or two ago, Judges twenty-one, twenty-five, the very last verse of this book. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, can you think of any motto that would better fit our own times? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. For isn't that just about what life in our society today is for so many people? Do your own thing. Do whatever you need to do to get whatever you want. I tell you, we sometimes in a a perverse way seem to, to like to pride ourselves that our day is unique. That things have never been as bad. That there's never been so much godlessness and immorality, downright evil around as there is today. Well, you know, maybe there are ways. I think there are in which our age is unique. But in those kind of areas, the people of God certainly, but not only in the days of the judges, have been through it all before. And we need, I believe, to learn from them. From their defeats And their victories. And we're going to begin that process this morning as I attempt in in different ways just to introduce judges to you. And as I do so, bit by bit, stripping away layer after layer, I intend, I hope, to progressively uncover for you what I believe was their central problem. And that still for many of us today continues to be our central problem. living out this Christian life. So let's begin that. Let's begin this introduction to Judges by first of all looking at its context in history. And its context in history is given to us right in the very first verse of Judges. 1 verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us? Against the Canaanites. Yes, for you see, it's in contrast with Joshua, it's in contrast with the days of Joshua that we begin to come face to face with the problem of the age of the judges. And to save us wading through a mass of contrasting material, there are two verses, one from Joshua, one from Judges, that I believe really just shine the light on this contrast for us. That is Joshua. 24 verse 16, a verse taken from near to the end of of the book of Joshua and therefore of Joshua's life, where we read, then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And then we have Judges 3 verse 7, a verse written in the period relatively soon after the death of Joshua, where there it says, that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Now do you see the total contrast? In In Joshua, it's far be it from us to forsake the Lord. In Judges, it's they forgot the Lord their God. And this is a contrast that Gary Inrig in a a little commentary he has on, on Judges, that as he points out, it's a contrast that runs right throughout the very heart of these two books. As he says, Joshua is the record of the exploits of Israel as they trusted the Lord and obeyed their God. God brought his people into Canaan and gave them victory after victory over their foes. Joshua is a book of conquest, but Judges is a long, sad story of defeat. Joshua is a book of faith, Judges of unbelief and disobedience. Joshua depicts a people united in following God's man, but Judges is a book of division and anarchy, as every man did what was right In his own eyes. In Joshua, God's word is central and men submit to his authority, while in Judges, scripture is neglected and rejected. What a contrast, then. What a complete and utter contrast. And it all happened. Within the space of a few short years. So where then did this people go wrong? Where did they take that wrong turning in their life of faith? Just what was their spiritual problem? Well, we're going to get to that in a, a few minutes. But first, we've got to dig a little bit deeper. We have to take another layer, if you like, of the life of God's people as we we move on from looking at at Judges' context in history to look further at its context in theology. And what I mean by that is, is just, where does Judges come in Israel's life of faith? Does it have anything special to tell us about their knowledge of God, about their relationship with God, which, after all, is what theology is about. That's what theology means. Well, I believe that it does. And that it's all tied up with their encounter with the angel of the Lord. The story of which is, is told for us in those, early, in those early verses in chapter 2 we read a few minutes ago. Because you see, there, there are a number of things that are very important, that it is vital that we understand about this encounter. First, concerning the identity of this angel. For, for some well-informed Bible teachers feel that, that because this angel speaks in the first person when sharing this message from the Lord, that in fact then that this angel is, is nothing more than one of the, the carefully coded and veiled appearances in the Old Testament of the Lord in human flesh to men. We find this just scattered a few different places in the Old Testament. I don't believe we can be absolutely dogmatically sure about that. Yet I do believe that this is a very strong, very real possibility. That being the case then, that, that lets us know that this appearance here was very, very important indeed. That here, before God's people actually go off track, the Lord was coming seeking to guide his people to keep them on track in this very direct way. Another thing that's important here in in this encounter is the journey of this angel, where he traveled from and where he traveled to. And it's there in in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. Because, you see, this is a journey that's absolutely full of symbolism. For in the book of Joshua, just read it and trace it through, Gilgal was a place of great importance. When the people miraculously crossed the Jordan, they came to Gilgal. When they obeyed God fully by renewing the practice of circumcision and keeping the Passover again, this was done at Gilgal. Also, it was at Gilgal that the Lord himself appeared to Joshua and gave him the promise that he himself was the commander-in-chief of the Lord's army and would lead them into victory. So you see, Gilgal was a place that was synonymous with blessing and with victory. But Bochum, though, why the very name means weepers. It means weepers. Weeping. Do you see then what this angel, what the Lord is saying here as he makes this journey? He's saying to them that they, by their actions, they are in danger of making the same journey in their lives. They're in danger of moving from the place of joy in the Lord, of victory in the Lord, of blessing in the Lord, to the place of weeping of defeat, of despair. Why is this though? Why is it so well? Look at the message that the angel brings. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now what we're we're talking about here is something that's at the the heart of the, the story of the Bible. And it's the theme of covenant. It's a theme that has its beginnings right back in, in God's encounter with Abraham in, in Genesis 12.3. And then the, the, the slightly expanded on and, and developed elsewhere as we move through the Bible. But its basis, its basis is God's declaration that I will be your God and you will be my people. That is that he will bless us, he will protect us, he will take care of his people. But in return, he looks for, he expects, he demands obedience. But you see, in the time of the judges, the Lord didn't receive that from his people. Instead, they chose to disobey him, not to keep their covenant pure, their covenant holy with him, as he'd commanded. But rather they decided to do what he told them not to do. To enter into covenants with others in the land he'd given them. All of this in direct defiance of God's often and clearly given repeated warning. For you see back in Exodus 23, in verse 32 and 33, the Lord gave this, this command. And he made it clear there exactly what would happen if they failed him. He said, do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Incidentally, seeing as we're touching on this, we might as well try to deal with it. That is, There are many people who've got a problem with what follows on from this, and what we read of a little bit in chapter 1 and 2 of Judges, that God should go on from this to command his people to either drive out or to destroy these other nations. You see, that it said is, is cruel and harsh and, and barbaric, and certainly it's, it's incompatible, they feel, with the picture that they have of God as a God of love. Well, let me tell you, God is a God of love but he's also a holy God. He's a God who cannot abide sin, who cannot abide evil. And these foreign nations here that we're talking about in Judges, they were as corrupt, as sinful, as evil as could ever be imagined. Indeed, many years previous to this, God hadn't allowed Israel to take the promised land in Genesis 15, 16, because he said the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. But now you see, as Israel has taken this land, this means that this must be because their sin has reached its full measure. It's got as bad as can possibly be. And you know, among these peoples, as an expression of their religions, things like bestiality and child sacrifice were commonplace. But God can't abide sin. That's why Jesus died on the cross as God and man, to pay the price of sin and to save each one of us from judgment. And so God acts here to try to save his people from the contamination of sin. To try to save them from the spiritual and moral decline that this would lead to. And to try to save them from the judgment that would inevitably follow. And while that might be what happens in Judges, might be an expression of his holiness. And indeed it is. Yet, you know, it is also an expression of his love. It's about love. As God tries to protect his people from the ravages of sin. But they chose instead to disobey him. Instead of driving these people out, instead of driving sin from their midst, they allowed it to live among them. And as you read through the early chapters of Judges, it's just one long continuing list of their disobedience. Chapter 1 verse 21 gives you the flavor of it. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. And it just goes on and on, on and on, until finally in the early verses of chapter 3, I'm not going to read everything there because I'll never be able to pronounce the names, we find that this people, the people of God, who'd been given the land by God, actually because of their sin, become servants, become slaves in their own land. So was the the spiritual problem of the people of Israel then, the problem that led to their terrible spiritual decline, was it simply, as is so often the case, just plain, pure and simple disobedience? Well, I don't think that is so. I think there's more going on here. I think there's something underlying this disobedience I believe there was something that prompted the disobedience I believe we've got another layer to go because you see what's the question that the angel here asked of God's people what's the question read it he says you have disobeyed me why have you done this well let's try and answer that question bugger on to look at the compromise of God's people. And there are two maybe seemingly insignificant details here, two things here that it would be so easy for us to overlook that I believe actually tell it all. One is the rather unpleasant story of the way that Judah dealt with one of the Canaanite kings who they defeated in battle, Adonai Bezek, For verse 6 of chapter 1 tells us that Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and they caught him and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, this was obviously done to to render him powerless. And it was a common Canaanite custom. And as you read on, Adonai Bezek himself, who'd done exactly the same thing, was pretty philosophical about it all. He saw it as something that was expected. But, you see, And this is the all-important point. Although this was a common Canaanite custom, this kind of act of barbaric mutilation, yet the Lord had never commanded His people to behave in this kind of way. He wanted their sinful enemies driven out. Yes, He did. If necessary, He wanted them put to death. He did, but not cruelly mutilated in this kind of way. But you see, what what had happened here, what what had gone on, what was going on, Israel had begun to conform to the world around them. You see, they'd been impressed by the world, by their seeming power and by their boasting and pride, so they then adopted their practices, their method. But, and here's the problem, the closer they got to the world... The further they strayed from God. And the result of this, well, I think verse 19 of of chapter 1 is a verse that, that really marks the beginning of Israel's actual physical decline. I think this verse is very significant. Because there we read the Lord was with the men of Judah, they took possession of the hill country but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. Now, you see, this probably seems to us totally reasonable, that being so seriously outgunned, Judah were unable to overcome their enemies. And, of course, that is the case by human standards. That is so, looking at this from a human perspective. But as we look elsewhere in the Bible, though, we begin to get are rather different people. For Joshua, in Joshua seventeen seventeen, he said there to Ephraim and Manasseh those tribes, he said to them, you are numerous and very powerful. You will have not only one allotment, but the forested hill country as well. Clear it, and its farthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have iron chariots, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. And then in this, in this very book of, of Judges, in, in chapter 4, we find Deborah doing just this. Yes, we find that Deborah led and empowered by the Lord, that she led God's people, she led the armies of Israel to defeat an army with no less than 900 chariots in its midst. But you see, What happened here for Israel was that the world became too big for them. What happened when they failed to drive the chariots out was that the world filled their vision. It was the fact that they were overwhelmed by its apparent power, its technology and knowledge. But at the same time, inevitably, their God became smaller. And this diminished faith led to diminished power. And so the cycle goes on and on. Diminished faith leading to diminished power. And diminished power as we don't see God at work leading to an ever more diminished faith. And it goes on and on. And a God like this, a God who we have made small by our faithlessness and who then refuses to pour his blessing upon such a people, well, as we see from the example of the people of Israel, such a God, a God who we cut to size in our minds, such a God is so easy to disobey. It's so easy. That was the heart of the problem of God's people here. They compromised with the world. They allowed themselves to be impressed and overwhelmed By this world. And so they became disobedient and faithless. They lived like the world. Let's finish by looking finally at the consequences of this. The consequences of compromise. Well, the consequence for Israel you find in in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 2. It says, When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites... The people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochum. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. You see, when Israel here realized where their compromise, where their conforming to the world was leading them, that is to an empty and defeated despairing life, well, they broke down before the Lord. And that place did indeed become for them Bochum. The place of weeping. It wasn't a depth of repentance, as we'll see later. But this is what happened. I want to tell you, I see this process paralleled in the lives of many Christians. And indeed, at times, in the, the life of the church at large. You find Christians who feel frustrated. Who maybe go beyond even that and who begin to feel as if they're spiritually dead. The life has gone. No longer do they have the sense of joy and peace and satisfaction that once they knew in the Lord. And they're maybe ready to blame other Christians for that, ready to blame the church for that, ready even to blame the Lord for that. But as you speak to them, you find that actually that the real problem begins within them. That's where the problem lies, because this world has become too big, too important, and their Lord has become too small. They've been impressed by all this world's empty boasting. They've been captivated by what this world seems to promise. And so in exchange for what this world seems to offer, money and security, popularity, whatever, they turn their back on a wholehearted, committed, obedient relationship with the eternal God who loves them, die for them, and who actually alone can give them that which is of eternal worth, that which really matters. As for churches, well, you know, I think too often we've allowed the world to overawe us and to cut down our vision and understanding of God. And what an effect this has as it leads the church into that that continuing cycle of diminished faith, diminished power, diminished blessing and disobedience. Irvin Jensen, a very practical down-to-earth American Christian, he says, under the heading of God's people live far below their privileges. He says that the book of Joshua shows the high calling of Israel. The power and wealth and blessing that they enjoyed while being true to God. Judges shows the terrible unfaithfulness of Israel. And their consequent weakness, failure and poverty. Joshua shows how Israel might have lived. Judges shows how they actually did live. And he goes on. The church is living below her privileges. The book of Acts shows how the church did live for a time under the direction of the Holy Spirit and how she might have continued to live if if he had been allowed to rule unhindered by sin and worldliness. But church history shows how she actually has lived. You know, I believe there's truth in that. Churches today are living far below their privileges. Don't think that church life as we know it is the way that it should be or has to be. There's more. There's better. There is, of course, there is. And everything can change. can change for individuals and for the church. It can change if we go to that place of broken. And they weep. Not empty tears. But real tears. Of confession. And repentance. Because you see. Things will change. Because I know that as we do that. That as he has in days of old. That our God will hear and answer. The cries of his people. And we again. Can know him at work in mighty power. May that day come to us soon. Let's come and pray. Father, we pray that you'll help us to learn the lessons of the people of Israel, that you'll help us to learn what it means to know you and follow you, that you will be the God who fills our vision, that our ambitions, our desires, The way that we live day by day will grow out of and be an expression of a living faith in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.